0: service. Hey, everybody, this is Eric Krasno, and you are listening to the Plus One Podcast. I want to thank everyone that's been listening to the show and uh, tuning in, sharing with your friends. We'd love it if you subscribed at Apple Podcasts. You can follow us on Spotify, on Instagram. It's just at Kraz plus one. That's Kras with a Z plus one. Um, I've been loving all the messages from everybody. You can hit me at Kraz plus one. That's K-R-A-Z plus one at gmail.com. I've actually reached out to a lot of people that have been suggested via email. So I appreciate all those suggestions and keep the questions coming. I really love hearing from you all. I want to let everybody know that I have a brand new single out It's called Silence I'm really proud of it It's part of my album that will be coming out early next year uh, You can watch the video at my YouTube channel And you can stream it on Spotify, Apple Music Or wherever you listen to music I'm really excited about today's show. My guest is one of the most talented songwriters I know. I've gotten to work with him extensively over the years. He and I have co-written songs for Tedeschi Trucks Band, Aaron Neville, many other artists that we've been in the studio with. He also co-wrote a lot of my album called Blunt from a Stone, some songs on my Telescope album. And uh, he's a great singer and artist in his own right. Many people know him as the lead singer for the Rustic Overtone, but he also just dropped a solo EP that I think is incredible. Uh, He sent me a link to it, and uh, it's paired with a short film that he directed and put together. Um, It's super creative, great songwriting, great production. So I urge all of you guys to check that out, and I'm really excited to get into this interview. But first, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. All right, he's an amazing songwriter, singer, producer, arranger, band leader, and one of my good friends. I'd like to welcome today's Plus One, Dave Gutter. Talking to my old buddy Dave Gutter, who is reporting live from Portland, Maine. We've written a lot of songs in that space. It's been a while since I've been there, but uh, my album Blood From a Stone was mostly recorded where he's sitting right now. Uh, and written and we've written a ton of songs together uh, in that room calling out to you tedeschi trucks uh some of the aaron neville record how long have you been in that space now 16 years wow crazy
1: yeah and we moved from a space like just adjacent to it on the other side that we were at for you know probably 10 years before that so we've been in this little building for a really
0: long time Made tons of records in there, huh? Yeah, all of our independent records are made here. And you were born in Portland or or in in Maine, definitely, but were were you born outside of Portland? Uh, I was born at the hospital in
1: Portland, but I'm from Gorham, which is just like the greater Portland area, just the outskirts of Portland.
0: Just for the listeners out there that don't know much about Dave, uh, I met Dave, shit, like 25 years ago, probably now. And um, Dave's one of my favorite songwriters of all time. He uh, led a group called the Rustic Overtones. And when I met Dave, the Rustic Overtones were just crushing the touring scene in the Northeast and touring all over the place. But most of all, you guys were like the pride of Maine, the pride of Portland. I remember coming to see you guys in downtown Portland, and you guys played on like the roof Of the bank or something. I'm totally telling you. The radio station. The radio station. And the whole place was flooded with people, and people were screaming all the words to your songs. You know, Ryan Zoitis was my connection uh, to you guys because uh, he was playing in your band and had been in the band for a while. And he and I had met at Berkeley. He was telling me about you guys, but I remember seeing you for the first time in Portland and seeing how excited your fans were and also just to have like their claim from Maine you know they had this 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 band that was out there touring and collaborating with people like David Bowie and signing major record deals and uh, i just wanted to get a little bit of background of like how rustic overtones came together and you know how how the band started and how you started writing songs and and becoming such a like uh, a great writer
1: where i live now the pub that is next door I played at when I was ten years old. Wow! And uh, I used to we used to play at this place down on the beach called the Crazy Clam. It was like outside, and we'd play like you know four one hour sets all afternoon and get like 150 bucks and be psyched. Yeah, the reason really I started writing is because of lack of formal training. I would write my own songs in lieu of learning other people's songs. So right off the bat, I started off playing guitar you know, writing originals. And I loved it. It's like the only thing I did uh, good at in uh, school was English and literature and all that stuff. I was really into that. I even did better than uh, I did in music (laughs) because I couldn't read music. I was faking it the whole time. Yeah, like we started real young and um, just played everywhere and anywhere we could. Uh, And the the way we got the rustic overtones is because our parents used to book us uh, and they would book us at like a supermarket like grand opening or like on a a float in a parade or like an ice cream shop. Um, and at these parties that they would have and they would be like, well, we want to hear this song. We want to hear the Everly brothers and we want to hear some Beatles and some, so we'd work these songs in, but we were like all about like punk rock, like, We wanted to be like, you know, the Ramones and the Sex Pistols at that point. Right. We were like super skater punk music. The name Rustic Oratones is like, you know, like old but new because we were doing like punk rock versions like Buddy Holly and stuff, you know. Right.
0: Wow. I never, I never knew that.
1: And then it stuck. We've been trying literally since we were 11 to change the name. And it never quite stuck. We almost changed the name uh, to The Love Underground at one point. We tried to do it, and it just
0: had a big backlash, and we just gave up. (laughs) That seems like every band. Like, Lettuce was a total joke name, and then it just couldn't go away. So what was the initial formation of the band? Uh, It was a bunch of...
1: uh, It was me and John Roots. Yeah. And uh, our friend Matt Esty, who played drums, we were just like a power trio. Yeah and then we started like our probably junior year in high school started getting kids from the band right like the concert band at school yeah, to come yeah. and play trumpet and saxophone like whatever yeah. um and we started incorporating that into our songs but not really seriously until we heard about uh this kid that Tony Magnavo joined the band instead of Matt yeah and he had a friend uh at another school uh Ryan Zoidis yeah, and Ryan Zoidis joined the band, and Ryan Zoidis was like uh, our. It was like a boot camp drill sergeant came into the fold and just whipped <laughs> us all into shape. Yeah, that moment is a very big turning point in my like musicality. Not really about like lyrics or anything like that. Uh, nuance. I was talking about coming up from punk rock everything is very blatant, like you don't hold back, and, you know, holding back is, like, a sign of weakness in the punk rock skate scene, so him playing me James Brown and and Bob Marley, and telling me to listen in to, like, the shaker in the background, and what they're doing, and how they're, and also getting me, like, blazed, and, you know, it had a big effect on me, but yeah, like, you know, we did uh, everything we could all the time, we played everywhere, and we took pride in never phoning it in, like, even if we were in a playing for just the bartender at the club we would just go hard because we love music it's not about who shows up and who's there who else is feeling it as long as we're feeling it that's all it mattered when we got signed uh in 1999 uh to arista records we got signed by clive davis that's when we you know became like a serious band we're like all right this is our job now right um and since then it's been going from different labels and you know trying to stay afloat and Trying to stay relevant, um, which has been cool because over the years, like stylistically, we're always changing. And and I feel like the same thing about the groups uh, that you've been in for yeah. years and years, Lettuce and Soul Live, because you guys are, you know, sticklers for style and and for like uh, an homage to the music that you love. That. It it becomes more timeless. So I'm grateful that I'm even still here. Rustic put out our twelfth album uh, last year. Or a year before that, I always forget about the pandemic year. Yeah,
0: yeah. But
1: um, we put out self-titled right after the passing of uh, our the late great Dave Noise, who was our due north, our our moral compass, our musical uh, ear. Uh, he offered a lot to the band and. Yeah, that was our our last release and now we're all just, you know, doing the same thing everybody is and tiptoeing out of the pandemic and
0: seeing what's next. See uh, what's next. Tell me a little bit about the process of getting signed and how did you guys get on the radar with Clive Davis? Oh, uh, this this is a really good story. We had a manager, uh his
1: name was Bill Beasley. I remember Bill, yeah. He was an animal yeah. he would he would stay up all night and like send emails and co- make calls to like japan when the u.s was not doing business you know what i mean and there was just coffee cups everywhere uh, and cigarette butts and he was just an animal he was so savage um one time a radio station in vermont uh said that uh they wouldn't play us because they don't play hippie music and he shaved a mohawk into his head and bought an army jacket <laughs> like, like uh, Travis Bickle from Taxi Driver. And he yeah. went to the radio station and like physically like roughed up the guy and said, you know, we're punks. We're not hippies. Yeah. And they ended up playing it. <laughs> wow. But so what he used to do, this is really crazy, but uh, maybe not that crazy, especially now. But he used to get street teams to call the radio stations. And I'm about to expose us. This should be on like HBO or something right now because I'm about (laughs) to expose. Um, Yeah. He would have people call the radio stations. He would have street teams buy back the records from the record stores. Right. Um, He would do showcases in New York for record labels. And here he would hire actors and actresses to fill the room. And he would also bus people from Maine down to New York Um, so that when we'd play the Mercury Lounge, it was packed packed with people that knew the words to the songs. Like you were talking, like the energy that you saw in Maine, we brought that to New York with a bunch of hipsters that he hired, and that's how we got signed. I mean, it's not that we were any better or worse than any other band, or it was just that, like the numbers game that everyone plays now. He was playing that game in like you know an exaggerated way. He cheated. And got us there but yeah. then once we were there we wanted to make sure that we were legit you know yeah. like just get our foot in the door and then but a lot of us didn't even know a lot of that was going on until right. after i remember thinking i remember looking into the crowd and seeing these hipsters in new york singing like hooks of songs and i was like how do they know us like right.
0: they can't possibly know us wow crazy i did not real well i did not really know that And I was at some of those shows, I'm sure. I remember seeing you guys at the Wetlands like a few times. I think I saw you at the Mercury Lounge too. But like, and also I saw a little bit, I kind of started seeing you guys when you guys were like pretty established. But then, you know, seeing you guys in different cities, because I'd start to see you in different places. And I remember seeing you at the Iron Horse once. I'd never seen like. A front man, you know, kind of doing his thing the way that you did it, and all. And I remember specifically you kind of like ridiculing the crowd at, at, in Northampton. You know, you were just kind of egging them on, and then right. and by the end, they but they kind they kind of like got pissed at you. But also, when you started playing, they were more into it. They were like, there was more energy in the room because I remember it being super awkward for a second, I- and then the, <laughs> but then it kind of like exploded, and I was like, well, that worked. I was my I was my mind was. My mind was like boggled that that worked, you know, cause I'm like, usually like, Oh, come on guys. You know, I was going to act like that's the old me. And then I realized that
1: like, I still do that when I do like, uh, solo shows, especially, Yeah, uh, you know, that's, and that's always been the thing with rustic. Uh, we've done huge venues and really small venues. And I think part of what our charm, or at least my motivation and my energy and charisma is to transport anywhere a concert might be held. I could be in some pub next to a dartboard and it's my job without the lights, without the led screens, without anything to transform that into a concert experience. Um, And I wouldn't always have the luxury of just walking out on a stage. You feel like you're a rock star already because you have all the stuff we would have, you know, shows we did with, two speak speakers on like poles, and we would just be at some place and we would try as hard as we could to use our energy and our rapport with the audience to get people to leave there feeling like they just saw a show you know what i mean right right not being background music uh is like where some of our
0: stuff comes from when it gets loud and Tell me about incorporating like horns into your music, because I think that's also something that was interesting about what you guys were doing was this juxtaposition of like this punk energy. I mean, of course, there's like ska bands, and I think there is that influence in your guys' music, especially the earlier records. It it was this interesting combination of like horn arrangements over like this hard music you know what I mean? Right. And was that was that just like circumstance of like oh there was horn players there or was that something you really thought about? Well, I think on on the grander scheme of like the musical
1: landscape that was everyone's thought. Like there was a natural evolution from punk rock to ska music right. and reggae and all that um in the world and like that's where you went like you it was punk and ska were kind of in the same thing. And then that's where you start meeting musicians that aren't like your three skateboard friends that all listen to the same music. Right. right. It's someone like Zoidas who comes in and shows you Stan Getz and shows you Tower of Power. Whatever.
0: Yeah. Yeah. All that
1: and shit. so once you start getting those musicians in the band and you all start learning from each other, that's when it gets great. And I think that the best thing that Rustic ever did was all the, because we weren't top billing all the time, that all that means is your routing is messed up. Right. You know, if you're not, if you're not selling out every single venue, that just means you get to drive 16 hours sometimes to the next show. Yeah. So we would spend so much time in the van listening to music and showing each other music. And by the time we got to the gig, we were so excited about music. Yeah. But by the time we got out of that van after sixteen hours, we were so pumped on that Kurt Franklin song we really love and yeah. that Nirvana song and the new Lauren Hill. And it would be like that whole energy from all that stuff would follow us onto the stage. Right. So I think right. really the listening to music, like we hardly ever practiced. We played a lot, but we hardly ever practiced. We just listened
0: um and we developed a, a language like, you know, every every band does. That's such an interesting Part of being in a band, and I think that's really crucial that I don't think about that much, but Soul I've had the same kind of experience where we evolved as a band by being in close proximity to each other, like in a van or a bus for you know days on end, playing each other records, you know, and I've and even when you and I've worked together, I actually remember calling you, to work on blood from a stone I'd been talking to Zoidas and I was like man I have these songs I've been been writing some lyrics but I really need help like fleshing out these songs you know and I, and I had a bunch of instrumentals. He was like, why haven't, why don't you talk to Dave, man? And I like had, for some reason, I hadn't talked to you in a while in that in that little period. And he was like, yeah, he's not really, at that point, I think you had kind of like quit for a little while, or I don't know what you were doing, but he was like, yeah, you know, Rustic hasn't been playing much and, you know, hit him up. I thought you were, you know, out of my reach, you know, cause you were like, you're, you're, you're a front man and you do your own thing. But I remember reaching out to you, and you were super into it, first off. But then I remember coming up to your house, and the first night we got together, we wrote uh, Plesia Mm -hmm. and Jezebel. Jezebel! think was both yeah. that same night. And maybe unconditional love might have been like the next morning or something. But uh I remember you were super into Chris Christofferson at the time. And we yes. listened to Chris Christofferson for like hours that night, which I had never delved into. I always like thought he was like a cool character. But do you right. remember the song though? What was there was like this long. What was the song? Uh, was it maybe to beat the devil? It could, it could have been. Cause
1: it's a lot of spoken word. It's just like spoken. Yeah.
0: It's tons of like spoken word. Yeah.
1: It's a, a song he made. Well, it's kind of similar to what uh, we were talking about. Uh, we've been writing a song this week. It's about uh, a friend who's going off the deep end or whatever. Right. right. Uh, in the beginning of that song, he prefaces it by talking about Johnny Cash and, and June Carter. Right. And, Talking about how Johnny Cash is about to go off the deep end, and then he stopped. He stopped him. So yeah. you know, it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I love that stuff. That's the the beauty of songwriting and the the relationship between the musicians. Like, there's so right. many songs uh, in my catalog that is about like uh, I like it low. Is yeah,
0: that's about one Johnny. Of my, that's one of my favorite songs of yours. Yeah.
1: Yeah, because he plays the bass. So yeah. I like it low. Is is talking yeah. uh, to Johnny. Like, yeah, yeah. You know, everything's gonna be okay, even if it's low. I like it low I like the darkness I like the farthest Point down in a hole I like it dark You're freezing cold Start up a fire I've got Christmas trees and coal Cause I like it low
0: Tell me about that period. I mean, would it be correct to say that you kind of quit music for a second?
1: Uh, I, I stopped playing music for one year. For one year, okay. Uh, in 2006, when Connie was born. Rustic has always been kind of like off and on. Like, we're like in every two years, we kind of flare back up and start right. doing stuff. And once we do, uh, it, this has been happening since we got back together. At, well, Rustic ended for a while but i was doing paranoid social club
0: that's right that's right yeah
1: there was that period but then like whenever rustic would get back together would be like yeah let's just do a reunion show we would start playing something that would end up being a song right and we were going to put out an album of b-sides and once we started writing it was all of a sudden a brand new album and that's basically in like 2007 or so when i got back to music that's how it's been just every time we get around each other uh where we rekindle our our uh, relationship with our instruments and playing off each other and everything
0: we'll be right back after this short break but getting getting back to to us writing together i think one of that really got me excited about songwriting in a totally different way and and part of that was watching you in your zone and and it's it's like the same thing when you see like an instrumentalist like a coltrane or somebody like just completely zo- like just blacking wow. out for like 12 hours. But yeah, so, you know, you and I have gotten together at various times and you will like literally not sleep for for even days. And there's been times where you know, I'll go I'll go away for I'll go sleep for a few hours and come back. But we'll do these sessions that are days long and I'll come out and you'll have stacks of pages and uh, pencils <laughs> that are broken and pens <laughs> and cigarettes and just like guitars like everywhere and instruments. Is that something you can just tap into or what are there moments where you feel that coming on? Like how how does that process work for you?
1: It's something actually that it's not that I can tap into it, but I can't tap out of it. (laughs) I get, you know what I mean? Like I, I will uh, cancel my whole life um, to sit and finish an idea. I just get into it like that. And that's been my process, but every Every week I at least do one all night session Yeah, or I I stay up all night editing or I stay up all night writing lyrics. Yeah. Um, But that's been my, that's been kind of like ever since I was young, like when I had to have a job, I used to like work at a diner Yeah, and I'd play a gig in New York and then I'd have to cook breakfast and be at work at seven o'clock in the morning. So I just come straight from the gig and stay awake. Right, right. And I was usually still kind of buzzing from music when I was at work. So I would start thinking of songs and stuff, and then I'd get out of work, and I wouldn't even go to sleep because I would be so excited. Like, okay, finally I'm free. Now I can get back to music. But the people around me and my family and everything, they call it music brain. And I'm just kind of like at this point where I'm kind of checked out, and I'm literally good for nothing else. I I can't even you know, do basic bodily functions and bathe. i am just obsessed with uh, the writing. Everything else in the song reacts to that. So it's this constant changing. And I'm, you know, we called ourselves the no men for a little while. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Because (laughs) the the most important thing to have when you're writing with someone is the rapport that you guys can say no to each other. Yeah, Yeah. Throw an idea. It's not gone forever, but maybe we try something else and it's a puzzle that you try to solve Um, as you go. And each part of the puzzle that fills in changes another part. So it gets obsessive. But I think a lot of the great writers um, have that you have a few people that, you know, sometimes stuff comes immediately. But uh, we've definitely had sessions. I've, I've tracked that we had a session
0: that we wrote eight songs in one day. Yeah. No, there's sometimes when and I remember that first day because also I'll have all these different riffs, and you'll have you'll spew all these ideas. And a lot of times, what my job at that point is is I come back and I look through your pages and edit, you know, down to like I we I remember like coming out there be like. 30 pages and then I would take all, and then the next hour would be finding these different lines and I'd fold the pages in certain yes. ways and like find well, you're, them. And you're like, the editor. Yeah. Yeah. I'd come back and editor. edit and edit like all this shit and then try to make, you know, different melodies out of it and whatnot. But uh, yeah. And this isn't even, a, this isn't even a
1: flex, but honestly uh writer's block is not the problem for me. The yeah. problem is having too many ideas and not sticking with a direction yeah getting all the like you know um i'm not trying to i was wild when you compared me to coltrane but yeah but like that's the way he was is when you listen to one of his solos it's trying every possibility and just flexing every possible thing you could do over that right um but then it's whittling that down to something that is
0: actually a song but i appreciate you for editing yeah, well I I enjoy doing that. I mean, especially when there's a, a sea of ideas um to go through. I'm curious going way way back um when you first started writing songs. You mentioned like you were into like punk music and stuff like that. Was there a particular record or a particular artist or even a person yeah. in your life that made you just want to like, you know, dive into the rabbit hole and and start writing songs? Honestly, like skateboarding
1: was kind of like what got me into music. It was basically just like I was unpopular. <laughs> and yeah. I wasn't good at sports uh, and I found the guitar and it made me cool. And so I was, I always had this, and I think I still do to some extent to be completely transparent, uh i have this i i'll show them competitiveness uh, it's yeah. like an only child thing i think <laughs> but you know it drives me it always has and as soon as i started getting people uh, attention i just wanted to do that more and i was like oh this is my thing i'll be good at and uh i i, I loved i loved writing even in school when it, before i wrote songs and stuff i always enjoyed writing and i won a, a poetry contest uh in like the sixth grade, I
0: was competing with people much older than me. Do you have any family members that were writers or, or musicians? It's interesting that I, I do not. Yeah. Although recently on
1: Facebook, these other gutters that did their like ancestry from Holland, Wow. <laughs> they, they reached out to me on Facebook and not, no one in my family here uh, is musical at all. And most of them have like really bad taste in music. Yeah. And, these guys, I looked at their Facebook, and they're all with like acoustic guitars and weird instruments. And they're over wow. there raging. They have bands and stuff. So I kind of want to go to Holland and go see
0: my long-lost gutter. Wow. And are these relatives? actual blood relatives, like cousins yeah. or whatever? Wow. Crazy. Yeah. And so as far as guitar, you're, you're self-taught for the most part. Did you take lessons like growing up or anything like that?
1: Uh, I took lessons after I already knew a little bit. Uh, from this guy named Scott Riska. Scott Riska took lessons from Marty Friedman from Megadeth. Oh, shit. so that's who yeah. who took lessons from Joe Satriani. Ah, so I was like, oh, this is my guy. This is right. that was like what right. I was all about. Let's not overlook that I was into like you know I'm 46. Yeah, so I was into like shred metal too. Yeah, 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 like the hammer-ons and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, but really, I have to. Tell the story now. If we're going to talk about lessons, I go to Kraz's. We're not. We're going to pretend Kraz is here. I'm just going to talk to you guys. <laughs> I go to Kraz's house uh, for a writing session. He's flying in from a festival, and I'm driving down to New York from Maine. We arrive roughly around the same time. Go to his apartment. Um, he got all these uh, mushroom chocolates oh, people yeah, had chocolates. given him at the yeah, festival. Yeah. And he was like, do you want to take mushroom chocolates? And I'm like, oh, well, whatever, you know, like, um I'm just trying to be cool again. That's my kryptonite. Um, So I take the mushroom chocolates. And then I noticed that Kraz is not taking the mushroom chocolates. And I was like, yeah, wait, I thought we were going to trip together and have this like, crazy experience and he was like, No, I'm exhausted, I'm going to bed and then he pieces up.
0: I think I just said, Do you want some? I didn't I well, don't know if I was like, well, Do you want to you know, eat it right I, now? It's not
1: really the thing you do by yourself, <laughs> but that's okay. Uh right. Right. now that I look back, it was all part of it. It was like when Liam Neeson, you know, like he like blows the dust or something into Batman's face and when yeah. he's on top of the mountain training. That's what I think about. <laughs> uh so at like three in the morning, I am peaking and, and we're in an, an apartment complex with other places. It's the apartment we wrote a uh, telescope about. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We're in that building yeah. and I'm tripping and you bring out your guitar and you have an amp in there and you turn it way up and right. you give me the guitar and tell me to play a guitar solo in no context tripping but don't wake up your neighbors right right so you wanted me to play very very light right which we go back to the punk rock thing or whatever like this is a thing that i've had to pull out of myself my whole career is to play quiet with nuance have some place to go you know the dynamics of everything the expression of everything and then i did the solo or whatever and then you played the lick from something yeah. Da, 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 da. yeah, and you showed me the chords to that yeah, and I played the chords and you kept playing that lick and then you'd look up and you'd say and this is how the lick would sound on guitar if Aretha Franklin was singing it and you would add like a little nuance to your note that would be it would sound like Aretha Franklin was singing and it was bugging <laughs> me out and I'm like <laughs> out of my mind. Um, and honestly, I had to take a bus the next day after our writing session to a gig in Rhode Island and literally 10 people after the show, all the guys in the band, everyone was like, what happened? Like what, what you played so good tonight. And ever since then, I've had this different approach to the guitar. It is really amazing. I tell pe- people this story all the time. So I attribute funny. anything, any time I ever do good on the guitar
0: to that that moment. That was really good. That's. I don't remember those details. I do remember you coming in and me. I remember you playing all night. And I remember this situation. but I don't remember the details. And at that point, had I given you that guitar, were you playing that that brown, the Ibanez? Uh no, not yet. Not
1: yet. It was just one of your guitars. It was in the yeah. living room or whatever. Yeah. I was on Facebook tripping, having a panic attack, not knowing what <laughs> to do. And I was like in some yeah. rabbit hole yeah. and like I don't know, probably like stalking some ex or something. Yeah. And just out of my mind like a psycho. <laughs> and then you came out and like put a guitar in my hands and yeah, yeah. Um, it, yeah it was very memorable for me. It was like a roller coaster.
0: No, I remember talking to you after that and you were like showing me, because I think we were just talking about like the nuance of, of uh, you know, the, and, and I'm super into that. I mean, I have trouble, you know, playing in really loud, aggressive situations. I've had to like really learn how to play over loud music. Like right. I was just dealing with this the other day because I was sitting in with a band uh, and we were, it was like some sort of co-bill. And my band played, and like the strongest moments in my show when it's a show that's like a Kraz show or even Soul Live, my my, the greatest moments for me as a player is when the dynamics are really soft and and tight, and that's where you because my I'm not like a shredder, I'm like all about trying to sound like a singer. You know, that's why I like Aretha Franklin makes sense if I was talking about her or, or Donnie hathaway or bb king mm-hmm. as a guitarist and a singer to me is like the greatest because he can play three notes and slay any shredder you know no matter how yeah. many no- he'll make you know a-, a shredder he'll embarrass the crap out of someone shredding all these notes just by playing one note the right way with that right vibrato and that right dynamic that was
1: another exercise in the lesson was the three note solo yeah, yeah, the three note solo.
0: Because I think we were yep. talking about that and I and like whenever I you know, I don't teach a lot of like lessons per se, but whenever I do, like that's always kind of my most important thing is that the greatest players in the world can can use limitation to their advantage. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um I think that's something that I've learned, you know, working with you and as becoming a singer, because I, I attribute you know, my and not that I'm a, a great singer, but I think that's something to my music that's interesting is that I've had to work within the limitations of my voice to create something interesting, you know? And I think you've helped me do that. When we do When we, when we made Blood from a Stone, when we initially got together, I was unsure if I was going to sing the songs, you know? It was like, okay, let's write a bunch of songs, we'll get different singers. And you kind of, you know, pushed me to sing you know, to to sing the tracks. You were like, there's a vibe there, just like go with the vibe, you know? And then as over time, I figured out, okay, well, this key, these keys work for me or this range works for me. But um, that's been an interesting, you know, piece to my musical evolution that I attribute to those sessions was like, okay, fuck it. I'm just going to be a singer, even though I don't think I really am.
1: Even before uh, Rustic got signed and all that, I'd gotten nodes on my vocal cords from, we did like, you know, when I say we played everywhere for years, like we did some years, like 300 shows a year. Right, right. And I was, you know, definitely belting out every night. And I got nodes and I, um, listening to gospel music, some of those records, you could tell people have been singing for hours or days and their voices are shredded, but they believe what they say. Yeah. They one hundred percent believe what they say so they can get there, they can do it. Uh and that's always what pushed me through having nodes, but you have to know your limitations and you have to know what keys are good and that's the same thing I did. And I think that there's a lot of people um that aren't, you know, perfect singers or they're not trained singers or
0: uh their voice has limitations. They are nasally like us. Yeah. Did you sing like did when you were a kid were you in choir or anything like that like how did you find your voice as a singer
1: we had a singer that um joined the band and he was our singer i just played guitar and then we had a birthday party to play yeah we were in like school like it was we were young and we had to play this girl's birthday party and he bailed oh shit and so i was like oh so the drummer sang half the songs and I sang half the songs. We just kind of split them up by what we knew the words
0: to. Yeah.
1: And then I just sang from there.
0: So I got to ask you about collaborating with the great David Bowie. He's on uh, the Rustic Overtones album Viva Nueva for those of... don't know.
1: Well, when we got signed, we got to pick a producer to produce our record. We had a handful of people. Uh, this is the late 90s, early 2000s. So some of the trends and some of the the producers that the label wanted us to work with versus who we wanted to work with were vastly different. Um, but we landed on, um, we almost landed on Daniel Lenoir, actually. And then the label kind of like uh, ictionated that for some reason. I don't know why. And then we landed on Tony Visconti. And Tony Visconti was Bowie's producer, also his bass player, very close friend. Uh, but they had since had a, a falling out uh, and hadn't spoken in, in fifteen years. Oh, okay. Visconti began producing our record, and because of the horns, he'd always be like, you know, Bowie would really love this because he, he's a sax player. He, you know, plays the yeah. sax solo on Take a Walk in the Wild Side, a bunch of stuff. Um so I did
0: not know that. Wow. Oh, really? Yeah, that's his yeah. sax
1: solo. Um But so he he said he kept referencing that he would really like this band, and we kept joking. Um, The intercon system at the studio, you had to say who it was to be let in. And I would always just go, it's David. Yeah. And, yeah. and they'd let me in. And every time they, they were like, oh, yeah, Bowie's going to come in any minute. You know, and we got so comfy with Tony Visconti. We were like, yeah, sure. Bowie's yeah. going to just pop in until the day that Bowie just popped in. And we were all like eating some like New York deli sandwich with like, shredded lettuce falling all over us and we were just like yeah. oh my god it's bowie <laughs>
0: where was this what studio
1: uh it avatar which we yeah. used to be in the power, power station, station. Yeah, yeah yeah and then we actually recorded with bowie um well we we played him uh our pre-production and right. he would come back over and over as the songs evolved uh he would just pop in and and check in on us if he had something in new york he would drop in um and he brought us out to like uh this like Bowie interview uh for like I forget the name of the the radio show, but it was at the museum of rock and roll history, and yeah. like he introduced me to Joey Ramon uh there exactly. and uh all kinds of all kinds of people and then um and that day actually put in perspective uh what kind of privilege it was to be working with Bowie because they talked to him about the artists that he's collabed with, and it was like. It's insane other than us, (laughs) you know, it's Freddie Mercury, it's, it's John Lennon and it's all legends. And so, you know, it was really cool and it really put things in perspective, but we were so, we were so taken aback by Bowie. We never, uh, like told him we liked his music even. We were just trying right. to act cool the whole time, which I wish I was a little bit more grown up when I met him so that, uh, but we did, you know, we got along and like, we had a similar sense of humor, um, but you know, it was amazing. And and once he came to the studio, like I said, he kept coming back and um, we had no idea what kind of price tag we were gonna get for him doing this one song Sector Z that he did. And yeah. then after he was like, I listened to the end of the demo and their very last song on the demo, Uh, It's a song called Man Without a Mouth. And he was like, I have an idea for that one too. Do you mind if I record my idea? And so we went in and uh, did this, you know, non lyric part. Yeah. Just like oohs and ahs. um, And then never charged us a penny to be on our record. And he, you know, he went hard. He spent the whole day working on stuff and he wanted to do extra songs. And he was always, you know, kind of just there hanging out. It was great we did that recording session at looking glass studio philip Glass's studio and yeah. um reeves Gabrels, uh the guitar player from tin machine actually came and uh hung out at the session too which was nerve-wracking for me because i was like a big fan of his uh, playing he had like a really weird like uh almost reminded me of, like robert fripp like just really strange out there progressive music
0: And what was it like working with Tony Visconti? Like, did you guys initially just hit it off right off the bat?
1: We it was super chill. Uh, We used to play foursquare, yeah, like really competitive, grown ass man foursquare. And he used to play with us, and uh, you know, like we took uh, we took ecstasy together and like ran through the woods. Um, I think Tony was naked and a. bunch of different points during the session we recorded <laughs> you remember after we did the drum
0: tracks in new york city at avatar we were out at longview farms i was gonna say i came out and played guitar i don't know yep. if did anything make it on that, the record that i that played
1: song uh was a song called break the news that never came yeah. out uh, and we couldn't even get a bounce um because well tony was a little bit dissed by the label yeah um, because the, the trends that I was talking about and the trendy producers or whatever, they plugged all these different guys into mix, the stuff that Tony had mixed, that we were all happy with his mixes. We loved it. Um, and they were doing all these remixes, and he was very insulted by it, and he felt kind of extracted from the whole situation. So, yeah, we never uh, we never put that song on the record and never even got a bounce of you on it, which uh, is yeah. so sad, but... We got to do martyrs later.
0: I remember recording that, and more, even more so. I remember going. Longview was so cool. I came there when you guys were recording. I had a couple of days off between soul live gigs, and I came out there. And like, I remember I got to crash in the Keith Richards room.
1: Yeah, that's where I crashed. Could, most, all black. Yeah,
0: yeah, because you could make it look like daytime or nighttime, because uh, it, it had like these windows that you could light up, and it looked like so. Because he would just sleep, you know, whatever hours. Um, but you can make it completely dark and just uh, epic ping pong. We were just going at yes. the ping pong.
1: It's one of my regrets is that um, we never invited Bowie to play ping pong because li- after the sessions, I I went on to read about a famous ping pong match that him and Lou Reed did that oh, wow. uh, was like Bowie was like, if I win, then I get to produce your next album, and that and he did, and then went on you know to produce. Oh uh, shit.
0: Yeah, but I, I just had a blast up there. And got. I remember recording those guitars with Tony, which was just a really cool cool. Yeah, it experience. was great. It was
1: one of those situations where uh, we were hoping you would save this song. This is one right. of the songs that we were like, <laughs> oh, there's nothing about it that really quite is jumping out at us. But if yeah. Kraz shreds on it, then it's going to be great.
0: <laughs> right, right. About, shit, 15 years later, uh, I played on one of your tracks called Martyrs. Yes, was, Which to this day actually is one of my favorite guitar it's one of my favorite songs I've played on, but actually one of my favorite guitar solos. Cause it's pretty different. It's, yeah, it's like, got like got this a Paul high signing. life. Yeah, yeah. It's got the Graceland kind of vibe. Yeah. And the chord changes are really interesting. Um anyway, I love that track. And there's a really cool video for that track, too.
1: Yeah, I, I wish uh I wish I could do all my records out there at Longview Farms. It was such a cool place so to describe it to people who might not know about it uh, yeah. it's in western massachusetts and it's a horse farm yeah that uh it's like completely a modern amazing studio inside but outside it's just a nice pond and horses that you can feed grass to and like hiking trails and like f- fields and it's just really really beautiful uh place to Record an album. It's just like horses and butterflies, and um, it's 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 a really cool place. I had a, I had a blast out there, and that's where we finished uh everything up. But we also had the songs that we had you come in, and uh, that song you played on. We we're like, maybe he can save this. That's like the same thing we did with the Bowie stuff. And now, in retrospect, I wouldn't have given either of you guys those songs. I would have given you the best song on the record <laughs> right right but uh you guys definitely came in the clutch but we had written like 200 songs for those sessions to, to be
0: pared down Crazy. to like 12 or 13 and yeah just to, as a side note too long view um the stones recorded there right i mean that's why we were mm-hmm. mentioning the keith richards room and uh i remember eating incredible food too there was like a chef yes lou that was yeah lou
1: was the chef at the time yeah. And it, the sat, there was a Satellite Dish out back that had the cover of uh, the Living Color album painted on it. Um, the Living Color album with the, the girl with a cage thing oh, okay. on her head. That was painted oh, on the Satellite Dish. Wow. Uh, so I assume they did that out there. And I'm, yeah. I know a lot of producers, that was like one of their uh, favorite studios over like Tom
0: Lord Algae. And that album had ended up changing hands, right? Didn't, didn't something happen with the label?
1: Uh, as when clive davis got ousted uh, like no one had looked at his contract that said if you're of a certain age you cannot be the president so it as as it seemed that's the way the whole news rolled out to us but it was like all of a sudden we were the darlings of his rock department and then the rug was just pulled out from under everyone LA Reed was taking over for Clive Davis. Clive Davis was right. out. He would go on to start J Records and have a very a whole other career. Right. But um without him at Arista, we really didn't have an advocate for the rock department. LA Reed was not interested in that. He was interested right. in developing the R and B artists, the hip hop artists. Yeah. Yeah. All the uh you know, there's a lot of subsidiaries of Arista is and, you know, Bad Boy and even uh Star Trek, the Neptunes yep. had their thing yep. then. Um that's I remember getting in advance of the clips album back then when they first yeah. came out and the Neptunes were first kinda doing stuff. Uh
0: so you guys ended up putting it out with Tommy Boy in the end. Yeah. Is that
1: right? Yeah. yeah, our our AR Kurt St. Thomas um moved, got a job at Tommy Boy and his first order of business was to sign us and he like really had our back and he really believed in the record. And we put it out on Tommy Boy and um you know it had decent success um it was it's still like an album that when we play live a lot of the songs from that record are on in the live show and it's the, the record a lot of fans know
0: please stick around we'll be right back after this short break Bring me up to speed on what you're doing now. So for the people out there, Dave's been always part of bands. Or, you know, in, in in our case, we've written for a lot of other artists. But now you are making your first real full-fledged Dave Gutter album. Am I correct by saying that? There was, yes. like, there was like an acoustic well, so he, Gutter album, well, right? Well, no,
1: that was me and Evan Kasas. Okay, okay uh, got a it. Musician and singer and um, producer that I worked with. But yeah, I've never done anything it's just me and yeah. i think i might have even done overkill because i literally did everything from uh well i'll start with it's an ep yeah uh it's a five song concept ep uh about getting older and it's about shedding kind of all the, like i keep referencing wanting to be cool yeah and you get to a certain point where it's just like well i'm only going to be so cool and i'm going to look less cool if i'm trying <laughs> so there's a certain point you just give up, you give into it. Yeah. And I, I wanted to make. Uh, I actually got the idea for this album when I had COVID, and my I was in my daughter's bedroom, not with my daughter. She was at her mom's, and I was yeah. locked in her bedroom to quarantine away from Caitlin, who did not have COVID. And I, I was getting these calls from people uh, that like I hadn't seen in years. And they would say shit to me like, I just wanted to call, let you know that I, I always thought you were a real great guy and you're real talented and everything. And in my head, I was like, these guys think I'm going to die. Like, you know what I mean? So all of a sudden I'm in this room just obsessing over my mortality and my age and all this. And I was like, I should write a record about this. That's completely transparent where, like, in the video, like, I have my license up there that has my my age and my weight and all that stuff right on it. And it was refreshing and fun uh, to just make a whole record um, that talks about, like, real shit that I know about, you know? That's the... I think that when you go to that realm, no matter what it is, as a songwriter, when you write shit that you really know about, that's when people, you know, can that's where you can convey it the best and the most clearly. Um, And, you know, that makes sense to be the case. And it sounds obvious, but to a songwriter, sometimes we forget to go to that place. Um, So, yeah, I just went to a real honest place and I didn't try to be cool. And I made this, uh, one take through, uh, music video that's 17 minutes long. That's me just doing wardrobe changes and set changes and light changes. Uh, and I just have a bunch of like props and I'm trying to just convey the basic idea of the, the record. But I really think, um, you know, like the lyrics to this record, I'm really psyched about I'm really psyched about the production. I played all the, the instruments on it aside from a couple things, uh, a trombone that Jamie yeah. Colpoise played and Tony McNambo helped me on piano. For the most part, I, it was just me, uh, recording stuff, um, by myself and writing with this idea that I was going to do something that was not hiding from being old, not right. lying about my age. I don't, not that I did that, but other yeah. people do that, yeah, yeah, but, you know, and, and not trying to get, like, take the filter off the picture and <laughs> let everyone see, you know, everything. So, and it, it, people sp- seem to be responding to it well, and I'm really psyched to put it out. Um, you have really pushed me to do a solo record for years, yeah. and I honestly haven't been like courageous enough to, but I think this... My life didn't flash before my eyes, but it flashed before other people's eyes. Right, right. And I saw that, so uh, I made this record. It's called I've Been Here a While, which Connie named it. I was going to call it like something... Like the new classical or some epic shit. She's like, oh, you ought
0: to just call it. I've been here a while. She's always had great ideas like that. I remember her, this, we're talking about Dave's daughter. Who? How old is Connie now? She just turned 15. Wow. So when we were making Blood from a Stone, she would come there after school and... Uh, chime in every once in a while, um, on, on stuff we were working on. And it would always be like hours would go by and then she'd say one thing. We'd be like, that's it. You know? (laughs) Yeah. You know, we'd be trying to figure something out for hours. We'd be overthinking it. Yeah. Yeah. And she would
1: just come in with the innocence of a kid and be like, Oh, why don't you just say this? Right. (laughs) Right. Right. Like I remember on the Aaron Neville record on heaven. Yeah. Yeah. She came down, she was watching Bob's burgers upstairs in the bedroom. Yeah, yeah. And she comes down wrapped in a blanket. And um, she's like, when are you coming to bed, Papa? And like me and Krazy are just trying to come up with this part. And she's like, rubbing her eyes. She's like, All right. well, what are, you, what are you trying to come up with? And we're like, oh, it goes, heaven, heaven. And they're like, it's so epic. We don't really know what to do from there. Like, what do you say? And she's just like, oh, why don't you just say, I hope I meet you there. Because everyone wants to go to heaven.
0: That was, that was one of the great moments of that album.
1: Yeah. I that, remember there's a line.
0: Yeah.
1: There was a bounce of the song where Joel had left his talk back on. Yeah. While he was bouncing a rough version of the song and him and Aaron and you are having a conversation about kind of coming up with that line.
0: Right, and it's in there. And
1: yeah, and you guys are all talking about how great the line is. So I have a version of the song that actually has you guys' commentary uh, giving her like tons of props for writing that line.
0: Wow, right. Oh, I gotta hear that. And she, I gotta hear that.
1: she goes she goes to school uh, last year, her yeah. freshman year in high school. Yeah. She gets on the school bus. The school bus driver is playing a cassette in the school bus and it's Aaron Neville cassette. And Connie goes, Oh yeah, a couple summers ago I, I wrote a song with Aaron Neville. And the guy just bursts out <laughs> just laughing. Didn't
0: believe her at all. It <laughs> did not. That's at all. hilarious. So we should talk about that for a second because I have, you know, I rarely get to talk about that process, which to me was one of the coolest experiences ever. We got to produce an Aaron Neville record. I mean, initially his manager came to me about working with him. I met with him, played him "Blood from a Stone," and he really loved the songs on there. And he's like, "Well, beyond just producing it." I want to get involved in writing this record because traditionally he hadn't really written his own music, uh, but he'd written a ton of poetry. So he sent me a book of about fifty poems, and Dave and I went to Vermont to my mom's house, like up in the middle of nowhere, There's no phone service and or, or nothing, and made basically just took. Excerpts and in certain cases, large, you know, pieces of his poems, but in a lot of cases, we would take a line or two and built, like, 17 songs or something out of this book of poetry, then um, formed it into these demos, and then went in the studio with him, and essentially, like, you know, crafted an album. Uh, some of the incredible moments that happened, though, were that I ended up demoing the vocals, trying to basically sound like Aaron Neville. You know,
1: well both of both of, both us, of us at us different did. times had to go up to Aaron Neville and yeah. sing a part to him, which is very <laughs> right. unnerving.
0: <laughs> right, and then also he, so we would do the demos, which already was. So it's like so nerve wracking to just play him my voice. And then you know during the sessions, you know of course we'd have to find the right key that worked for him, and then he'd make us sing it again. And there was one time I remember, and it was because like, we'd start really early in the morning because he always wanted to start at like eight in the morning, and we'd go in the studio. And there was one time where I had to go in at eight in the morning and sing in his key in like this right. falsetto. Cause he wanted to have, you know, a guide track of like how we heard the melody. And of course he'd add his flourishing and his thing to it, but he was like, Hey man, you know, he'd be like, Eric, I need you to put down a, a, a vocal real fast. And then I'd have to go in and pretend to be him to him, <laughs> you know? And it was like the most nerve wracking thing ever. I mean, of course, once we got to know him, it was, it was ended up being kind of fun and he would We'd joke around, but it was just the craziest uh, experience trying to emulate like the, one of the greatest singers of all time. We never know where life will take us Is it waiting just to break us When we'll we go on faith alone Sometimes it's hard to believe Gotta keep holding on Gotta
1: keep there's a there's a certain point, if you're a songwriter or whatever, that you have to go into these situations where you feel like you're butt-ass naked yeah. and you just have to... So it's like, i <laughs> <You know, like, laughs> it, it doesn't matter if you can go there, especially if you work with a singer like Aaron, you know he can go anywhere that he wants. So your imagination goes to these notes. You hear it in your head and you're hoping that they hear it too. But it's like a, it's like a humiliating lovemaking between musicians because you have to really put it out there. And just show them everything and hope that they understand your your idea. But I think of some of the demos that uh, we have sent. If someone heard some of the voice memos of ideas we've sent each other. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. Even just yesterday, yesterday I was sending you – track. I mean, and that's something that, that I do a lot with Dave is I'll have a, a demo of a track, and then I'll sing a bunch of gibberish. And, you know, you'll translate that into actual – words but some of that is hilarious because sometimes i wear, will hear certain words you know so i'll be like oh, i'm on the news of no 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 and like i'll say right. you know but it sounds so funny like if, if a non-writer like hears that they'll think i'm completely insane you know sometimes i play my, play my wife the voice member she's like what the hell are you saying i'm like well i know <laughs> that these certain words will sound cool there but you know i need to actually right. finish it it's like it, it, and then that leaves me with like a mad lib Right, right, to fill in different things. <laughs> to fill in. Oh, I just
1: wanted to say the cool thing uh, about the Aaron session with me was like getting all those poems because I mean, once we made songs out of a couple of the concepts and ideas, he started sending us more. Right, right. And I think I counted like 300 poems in that I total. had with him yeah. that I gave to my mother for her birthday because it's her favorite singer. Right, right. But I had the I remember I had them separated and it was like Aaron spiritual Aaron Family, Aaron Love, yeah. Aaron Streets of New Orleans, you know, yeah, like growing yeah, up, yeah, you yeah. Know, like jazz and all that stuff. Um, and there's even some stuff that was like, like some crime type stuff that he had been through. Yeah, and it was weird to have someone who's had such a crazy life, been through so many decades, and been a centerpiece of uh, this whole soul movement. You know, to not have written it, much music from his own standpoint right so i thought it was really great and especially when we wrote some songs where i basically had to research you know and learn my shit about new orleans yeah and you know when we got was it there was a new orleans like jazz magazine that gave us some sort of like authentic auth- authenticity badge yeah i
0: think offbeat talked about yeah rec- yeah which is like the new orleans magazine yeah
1: and i was like i i fooled him <laughs> yeah. you know i i learned my stuff and i and i wrote down the you know the stuff that aaron wrote was also i'd have to ask him i'd be like so this guy that you're talking about because he had, had like some weird like slang instead of it and some of it he'd be like you know i i can't remember some of the names but he'd be like and then monster face and I was yeah. like, "Bounce to face is a friend of yours?" Like, yeah, that's what we called him because this happened, and when we used to do this, and so that was really cool. Like asking him questions about the things in his poetry and getting the stories of New Orleans from like such a enriched time in
0: music. Yeah, if you guys check out the track called "Stomping Ground," um, yeah, that's exactly that, what I thought. There, there's a ton of references, and some of them, like Horn Man, was his brother uh Charles, and there he references like Mac Redmanac, Dr. John, and he talks about a lot of legends in that song that uh there and that that whole song has all these little nuggets of of New mm-hmm. Orleans like you know jewel, gems, and uh a lot of his a lot of his poetry did did have that um so yeah, it was one of the coolest experiences uh to make that record and my favorite
1: part about that was he got so comfortable with what we were doing sonically and lyrically that at the end he did that, um, spoken word.
0: Yeah. 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 What's that tune called? Fragile Uh, world.
1: Fragile world. Yeah. Yeah. And it was just a poem that he had written, uh, that we thought was really cool as is. And we talked him into just doing it as like this Tom Waits, Chris Christopherson type spoken word thing. And that, at that point I realized that, Aaron's really comfortable with our ideas, and he's really comfortable with our our vision for his record and I, I liked it, and then we got into the stuff where we were writing a song about his wife, yeah, and I was asking him stuff about his wife, um some of the love letters in his uh poetry thing uh, made me blush, yeah. so I had to get answers,
0: yeah um, Yeah. yeah,
1: and that was really cool. I felt like you know it was like uh we talk about language and communication and and relationships within making music but that was a a respect and a trust that i felt we hit a point in our session where we had that from him and it was a great session
0: i really really enjoyed working with him and also on the production side like he hadn't been that at least i i my understanding is he hadn't really been around for a lot of like the mix sessions and the mastering sessions and those types of things. And he was so interested in that. And it it blew my mind that, you know, because a lot of times in the old school uh, ways, you know, he would come in, do his vocal and that was his job and he would leave, you know, in this record, he was, he loved being there for all of the creative decisions and as we were mixing and overdubbing and adding all the horns you know and all that stuff he loved to just hang and be a part of it you know and uh that was that was special to me that like you know it felt like you know he was a young kid again you know in the studio
1: right as we were sending like mixes out joel hamilton uh engineered the session and he was sending mixes out to everybody and I remember that Aaron Neville on Instagram posted a picture of himself, like looking off a balcony with AirPods in. Yeah. Yeah. And he said, uh, my favorite record I've ever made.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Was the caption. Yeah. And I was just like, taken aback. Like, I don't care who likes this album. Yeah. If Aaron Neville, if we talked about his life and his experiences and we got to a point where he was that happy with it, like that, you know, that's, that's such a great feeling. Fragile world, everyone's in the path, and no one's safe from its mighty wrath. Tornadoes, earthquakes, and hurricanes.
0: Forest fires, mudslides, torrential rain. Heatwaves, floods, and blizzards. Melting of polar ice. And if all that's not bad enough, Humans just won't play nice. Back to your album that we're um, that's about to drop. Just give me a little info in terms of how to find it. First off, uh, I know you mentioned this before, but he sent me the, uh, the video, and the the video spans the entire album. It's such a cool concept. It looks amazing. Uh, when is that dropping, and how can people find it? That's out
1: today. Uh, the video's on YouTube. Yeah, and uh, the Beautiful. audio. Is going to be on all the streaming services and Apple Music or Amazon, wherever you get music.
0: And, uh, and it's called I've Dave Gutter. I've been here a while. Beautiful. And how do how do people find you? What are your social media uh, tags? It's at Dave Gutter, right? Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much everything. Well, uh, I appreciate you taking the time. And uh, man, let's we we we'll do volume two at some point. Great, I'd love to. I'm a big fan of the podcast. Thanks, man. Thank you for taking the time, brother. All right. Peace. I want to thank Dave Gutter for being on the show. So cool to talk with him and reminisce about all the sessions we've had over the years. Before we go, I'm going to play a track called Martyrs. And I actually played guitar on this track, and it's on the Rustic Overtones album called Let's Start a Cult Part 2. plus one is hosted by me eric krasno executive producers are rjb and christina collins audio production by matt dwyer produced by myself and ben baruch of 1111 group all original music is by me and most of which are instrumentals from my album telescope under the artist name Kras. this podcast is presented by osiris media if you'd like to get in touch with us email Kraz plus one at gmail That's K-R-A-Z-P-L-U-S-O-N-E at gmail.com. Send me some questions. Maybe I'll answer them on air. Send me suggestions of other guests you'd like to hear on the show. Thanks again for tuning in. I'll see you next time.
1: Osiris.